Hello again, and welcome back to Farrandon Film. Following on from last week's episode and the first instalment of our new Top 10 series, today is the second Top 10 where we'll be discussing our Top 10 films released in the 1980s. I've once again been joined by podcast regular Sam, and two new voices from Oasis Academy Oldham in the form of Gemma Hale, Head of RE and PSHE, and Oliver Ball, Teacher of Science. Once again, our discussion was recorded over a video conferencing app, so I can only apologise for any distortion or difference in the usual audio quality. That being said, let's get into it. So the 80s are quite a pivotal time period for GCSE Film Studies course, as we have to compare one film made in the 80s, which may or may not come up in this episode, to a film made in the 1950s, which for us is Rebel Without a Cause. When we did the World Cinema Topic and the documentary episode, I gave some spiel about how these are huge topics and areas of film and that we're merely scratching the surface. That's true for today, because we're also going to share a maximum of 40 films, but there's probably going to be some crossover along the way. So what we've all done is that we've done our top 10 lists and I've made it very clear, don't want us to share them beforehand. And then at the same time, if, for example, my number 10 is Gemma's number four or Sam's number three, don't spoil that then. Leave it until we get to the kind of reveal on that. Um, So before we get started, I'm going to share my honourable mentions and then I'll ask you guys if you've got any honourable mentions as well. So four films that, I mean, I'll be honest, I think if you were to ask me on a different day, two of them might have made my nine and ten spots and again they would have all just been shuffled around um but so my four honorable mentions are the never-ending story which was something that i grew up with when i was a kid i've not watched it too much since but the song is ace and (laughs) stranger things reminded me as much of that recently um batman and again like sam we mentioned this on the batman podcast that i think the 89 batman is probably my least watched of all of those films so i felt a little bit i was cheating a little bit if i tried to include that um die hard again i think i've seen that twice and it's probably not on like my big film rotation so i've not i don't think i know that enough um and then dead poet society because i feel like i like that more from an admiration perspective of just what robin williams did with it his brilliance and the whole my captain or captain um or the other way around or captain my captain yeah um so again i think that's more of a kind of look how great that film is but i wouldn't say it's a favorite it's just a great film uh sam have you got any that just missed out on yours yeah i've got a couple mate um so i think i'll go i've got loads but i'll, I'll keep it to to four or five like you did um so i've gone with um coming to america um with eddie murphy i think that was a really really top top film and i'm struggling this top 10 has been really difficult but i've just gone with what i enjoyed so coming to america would be in there i've gone with three men and a baby um, for nostalgic purposes um when i was a a child i've gone with um born on the 4th of july with tom cruise i've gone with child's play and <laughs> I've, I've gone with um sorry i'm just having a look here where is it now die hard as well okay Gemma. so i guess my honorable mention would be what i would put in as my number 11 because i i whittled it down to 11 and that is uh that's uncle buck oh it just it just <laughs> missed the cut but then like you said adam if i was doing this on a different day it might be in the top 10, and then one of my 10 would then make it down to 11. Um, yeah, Uncle Buck, classic. Ollie? 
Um, well, I did my list a little bit differently, and I said to it, and I couldn't get out of this format really. I try, I almost tried to do like to make it easier. I did like one per almost category, but it still works out as a top ten. I'm happy with it. But looking at some of the other options, I could have had. Um, I could have had Secret of Nim, which was Don Bluth's first animated film after he broke away from Disney. Um, just absolutely stunning. The Terminator, uh, kickstarter for James Cameron's career. Um, horror movie, weirdly enough. Like, it's billed as a bit of an action movie, but it's definitely a horror movie. Um, uh, Nightmare, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, uh, Return of the Jedi. Uh, these, yeah, so these are kind of what I'd have as honourable mate. It was just a great decade, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think this is a conversation for another podcast, but I think Return of the Jedi is the worst of all the Star Wars films. I think it's yeah. awful. Um, but anyway. Yeah, <laughs> I'll happily have that conversation. Really well. I think uh, if I could just say one more that I would chip in on. when we're talking about horror films. So even though I hated it, at the time, I now like it, is uh, The Lost Boys. Yeah. So I was yeah. terrified of that when yeah. I was a kid. But then now, as an adult, I see that it's not actually that scary. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't my favourite in the 80s, but retrospectively, yeah, brilliantly, yeah. Uh, br- brilliant film there. Honourable mention there. Mm-hmm. So starting off with the number 10, Sam, you're up first. Okay, so number 10 for me, I've gone with difficult in terms of the ordering, but 10, I'm going to go with Lethal Weapon, uh, directed by Richard Donner, and I think that was 1987. Sort of like when I, obviously, this is just before I was uh, I was born, but it was like that sort of, I th- there was probably plenty before, but it was the buddy cop movie, but I just thought it was done really well with a mix of comedy. I think... Obviously, Mel Gibson's had an indifferent career since, but I think this is him at his best um, as he plays the unhinged Riggs. And I think Danny Glover is the sort of cop who seems to be retiring in every one of the films. Um, But the first one's the best one. And obviously, then you've got... Is it Joe Pesci in there as well? Or is he coming to the later ones? I'm not sure. But just the, the, uh, the film was good. It had the action, which I was really into growing up, and the comedy. And I just thought overall it was just a... Uh, a feel-good action film which uh yeah um as they go on two three obviously then that goes out of the 80s but the first one um i thought was was probably one of the best so yeah for me um lethal weapon number 10 i think you've been very polite by saying indifferent to mel Mel gibson's career (laughs) yeah well i'm just uh not trying to make sure the conversation goes goes down that (laughs) route but just to keep it on the films um, but yeah, for sure. Just yeah. uh, I think I do think that he does a good performance though in in Lethal Weapon. Uh, Gemma, your number ten. Um, so uh, number ten for me is um, Karate Kid, the Karate Kid. So from uh, 1984. Yeah, I just sort of loved it. I think it's got all the elements of like zero to hero, triumph, and all of this against a bully. Um, it seemed quite exotic at the time being an 80s kid from a small rural village, this karate thing being quite exotic. Um, and uh, and then I think there's the element of the love story in there as well with him getting together with the girl. I think looking back as an adult, I do see him as a little bit obnoxious and asking for it a little bit a couple of times when he uh, started winding people up. But yeah, absolutely loved the karate kid. Reminds me of being a kid and 
uh, pretending to learn karate in the street with our friends, which was just kicking each other, I think, really. But yeah, br- brilliant, brilliant film. Wasn't so keen on the uh, on the sequels, but the uh, the original loved it. What did you think of the remake? Um, the one with uh, Jaden. Uh, yeah, and is, Jackie is, Chan. Is Jay- yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I. I, I, it's, it's just never as good, is it? It's just never as good a remake. Yeah, it's a good film. Independently, if I'd have watched it without being a big fan of the 80s one, then uh, I'd have thought, yeah, it's a, a pretty good film. But it just loses a certain something, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, when something's remade, I I always think that. So it was it was all right, but it wasn't the original. I remember there being a big like kick up a fuss because it was set in China and they were doing karate. And <laughs> like, that doesn't add up there. Um, Ollie, go on, your number 10. Okay, my number 10 is Princess Bride. I thought it covered, I was trying to think of like a kind of fantasy one, like Never Ending Story. A bunch of people are going to say some comedies today. And I thought that just combines the pair of them. And it's got action and it's, you know, physical comedy, visual comedy. The characters are all fantastic, they're all brilliant. His confrontations with the three guys who originally kidnapped Buttercup being tailor-made to each of them, the sword fight, the wrestling fight, and the battle of wits. It's just brilliant. It's really, really funny. It's a really good catch-all film. And the fact that it's Peter Falk reading it to his grandkid, who I believe, is it Fred Savage from The Wonder Years? Um, Yeah, so, you know, it's in the backdrop of him reading the book to him. So it's almost a bit fourth-wally. Like, a film released like that today is par for the course so it's massively ahead of its time in that regard as well just yeah that's my comedy princess bride shout um my number 10 and again you know thinking about my honorable mentions this could have swapped places with any of them i think um is aliens from 1986 um so the sequel obviously james cameron directing this time around action film rather than a kind of slow burning horror film i think it's much better than the first one i prefer it you know miles more than I, I did the first alien film um and i just think it's it's one of those films that especially in that time of the 80s when you're looking at things like genre hybridity so we're looking between action and horror and sci-fi and how it's okay to go between the three and you don't need to just stick to one um and the whole thing with um ripley coming out in that kind of mecha suit and you know there's i relate that so much with the iconic iconography and the imagery from the alien franchise and most of it comes from aliens we'll forget about the later ones and you know we we can take the first one but again this is this is my pick for number 10 because i think it's the best of the alien franchise um so then i'm going to stick on with my number nine and my number nine is from 1988 and it's tim burton's beetlejuice and I, again, this was on TV the other day and I kind of put it on and I thought, this is my number nine. Have I made the right choice? And I was like, yeah, you've made the right choice. Uh, it needed to be somewhere in there. The soundtrack is amazing. The the practical and, the you know, instead of using visual effects, which obviously they would do nowadays. And I'm worried that if we go down the route of remaking it or doing something like that, it's just going to become CGI. And it's just, you know, and it's not as believable and it's not as weirdly kind of, alluring or you've got an affinity to these these effects and things like that the practical effects and i just think michael keaton is fantastic and we mentioned this on the on the batman podcast that michael keaton was cast because they enjoyed his frenetic behavior because of beetlejuice 
and they thought he can so clearly do two different sides to the same character. And that is, you know, kind of served him well, I suppose, in his career. So, yeah, my number nine is Beetlejuice. So, Sam, your number nine? Uh, a little bit different. I've gone with Romance in the Stone with uh, Michael Douglas. Um, odd one, I know, but I just, I, I always think about what films when I was a kid in that 80s time where I used to think what used to make me, you know, think of a really top movie that had all the sort of feel-good factors to it. And, it. and it just did. It was like an adventure movie. It's like when you're a kid and you're on a treasure hunt and it had that idea looking for something. And uh, Danny DeVito in it is just brilliant. So um, he brings like the sort of different comedy to it. So yeah, I, I've just gone with that dead simple feel-good film, like a sort of treasure adventure hunt film, popular in the, the 80s, them sort of things. And I think it goes alongside that Indiana Jones, but obviously not to them lengths. But I just really enjoyed it. I think that surprised me a little bit that you the Michael Douglas film in there. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's just top ten that you enjoy, really, isn't it? Well, that's it. That's exactly the point. Gemma, your number nine. Yeah, so my number nine is one that you've covered recently in its uh, very own kind of uh, um, podcast, and that is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. In fact, I even uh, wore my T-shirt for the occasion. Um, yeah, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, just absolutely classic. It's that typical um, American dream completely American dream just from the absolute start you know the massive house that we all saw like the home alone house kind of thing where I think when you're a kid you don't look at it and go what must they do for a living to be able to afford that kind of house and five sports cars um you don't even look that when you're a kid don't you but I loved it I loved the rebellious nature of it I loved the fact that they get one over on the uh, the head teacher and just how much like Ed Rooney is just screwed over throughout the entire film even the last the last scene of it where he has to get on the bus and it's just this like final insult to a terrible day for him. I love that. But I love the contrast between Cameron and Ferris and how, um, you know, Ferris is bringing Cameron out of his shell a little bit, but Cameron reigns Ferris in a little bit. I love that. I love that there's a love story in it. There's a cool car. Um, it's it's just it almost seems so American, which was just a massive dream, I think, for 80s English kids because it was just so much cooler than our lifestyles kind of thing. So, yeah, definitely uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Absolutely loved it. Brilliant film. Yeah, I can't argue with that. And th- th- that idea of what do they do for a living? The same with the Home Alone house. <laughs> it's like John Hughes's huge you know houses and it's like what do these people do for a living and the theory that the uh the dad in home alone is a drug dealer <laughs> it's just you can read into that so much um ollie you're number nine and then if you stay on and do your eight as well okay um my number nine um might initially make people giggle or go yes i'm not sure which is the little mermaid um disney was an unequivocally big part of my childhood growing up. And I grew up in that Renaissance era where it was Beauty and the Beast, uh, Lion King, Aladdin. You know, they were just doing hit after hit after hit. And it culminated in Disney ending up with, you know, Oscar nominations for the first time, you know, for the first time in a very long time. And you look back and the film that kickstarted that right at the end of the 80s in 1989 was The Little Mermaid, the quality of animation from the last few films absolutely skyrocketed they treated it like musicals and got in you know top songwriters with Howard Ashman and Alan Menken and occasionally involving Tim Rice as well and 
it changed it's it absolutely changed the landscape and on top of that you've got characters actually kind of doing things for themselves ariel was ariel was a bit more independent she had a lot more going on about her than your classic disney princesses um and then there's ursula who is one of the best disney villains ever i i love her she is a queen um so yeah it's got to be little mermaid at number nine uh for number eight um I thought it very, very important to get one of the kings of the 80s in here, and that is Mr. Arnold Schwarzenegger. You cannot have a list of 80s films without a Schwarzenegger entry. And I did say before that an honourable mention was Terminator, which is very, very hard to overlook. But for me, it's Predator. John McTiernan, again... Um, you start watching the film and other than the first cut, you could start watching the film a little bit late and think it's just a standard dumb Arnold action film where they go into a jungle and kill a bunch of, then you start seeing these clues that something's up and then they're being hunted by one of the best monster designs in history. If I'm not mistaken, I think it was Stan Winston who did the monster designs who went who for other stuff he did uh, all the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. Um, so this was a serious design for it, and it's that kind of what Adam alluded to with Aliens before, that blending of genres. It is an action film, but it's a horror film as they get picked off one by one. It's a survival film, um, and that last sequence where Arnold Schwarzenegger is basically silent for a good 20 minutes as it's just him and the Predator facing off against each other is one of the best cat and mouse action sequences I've ever seen. So, number eight, Predator. Good shout. I mean, I didn't expect Little Mermaid. <laughs> I will say that. Um, I don't know I don't know why, but yeah. Uh, but I'll remember when... I'll remember to uh, message you when we do the Disney Renaissance episode and we can talk through all those great films from 89 to 99. Basically, Disney that everyone likes. Forget the other stuff. Um, so, my number eight... I think it's a bit of a lesser-known film. This was one that I watched at university uh, from 1987, Near Dark, the Catherine Bigelow film. So it's it's um, about vampires, and basically I think it comes off the back of maybe Lost Boys, and she was trying to do something a little bit different with it. Bill Paxton's in it, and Bill Paxton, I think he plays a character called Caleb, although I might be getting that wrong and confused with something else. But it's essentially a bit of a slow burn, but it's one of these kind of stereotypical horrors where we're going to... We're going to tease certain things here. We're going to, you know, um, just basically frighten the life out with with, the, with these vampires. And for me, it was it was the beginning of Catherine Bigelow's career. She's she's testing the waters with all these different genres. She's thinking, I'll go and do action with something like Blue Steel. I'll go and do horror with something like Near Dark. And it has that same inflection that she brings to all of her films. But this, I think, captures more the idea of we're treating the vampires as a family and they are a familial unit and they're working around together and how can they survive? What are they going to do next? Where are they going to go next? And how can we relate to them through the eyes of a human, you know, a non-vampire? And again, I think that's a really, it's a really good film. And again, I think it's something that some people maybe either haven't heard of or just not either got around to or anything. And again, I would recommend that for you uh, to go back and have a look at. So Sam, your number eight. Yeah, so with number eight, I've gone with uh, The Breakfast Club. So 1985, um, 
you did a podcast ads on John Hughes, so I'm sure that this was a big part of the discussion that was in there as well. Um, great film. I only watched this later on, actually. I think I watched it four years ago, which is criminal. Um, but people had told me for years, you need to watch this film, and it's part of like the nostalgic 80s films that you'd like. And I just never got round to it. I don't know why. Anyway, I watched it with my, with my wife, and it was just amazing. I mean, obviously, it's got... Um, every group in high school, the sort of labelled groups and just uh, being stuck in school on a Saturday and just how they end up bonding and coming together and how, how it has a deeper meaning at the end. It was I just thought it was a really, really well done film and I can't believe I missed it, to be honest. So um, it's probably one of them things where um, normally films that I've watched from my childhood are normally in the top 10, not some that I've watched recently, even though it's an older film but it just was so good. Um, I watched it numerous times afterwards because it's that good. Um, so it's just one that, that got away, really. It slipped through the net, but amazing. And, and obviously, wish I would have got round to it a little bit sooner, but um, could be higher up in the list. But it's 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 what it's the top 10 I enjoy, really, not what people would go with. So I think that's why it stays at eight for me. So Breakfast Club. I mean, I was really late to Breakfast Club as well. I mentioned this in the, in the conversation that I had with James King that, I watched it for the first time five years ago, I think, and uh, literally the the two days after I'd watched it, it was being used in my teaching because uh, I just I couldn't, you know, I couldn't deny its great use of representation and things like that. I uh, own it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Gemma, your number eight. Okay, so this is where I start to balance out the kind of uh, the boy films with your like ultra manly predator and things like that. Oh, by the way, I read something about Predator once that Arnie apparently got paid an average of about £13,000 per word because he speaks so little in the film, apparently. I thought that was Terminator, but it could be Predator. I'm sure it was Predator, but um, I might be wrong. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so I'm going to I'm going to enter my uh, kind of uh, chick flick. Uh, entry here which is uh, Mannequin I don't know if any of you know that film Mannequin what an absolute classic so again it's got the love story in there a bit of a deadbeat that um, gets obsessed with a mannequin that comes to life um, classic 80s in terms of that massively unrealistic idea of, of a mannequin that comes to life um, I love the fashion in it it's like this really over the top 80s fashion massive shoulder pads because it's set in a department store so it's really uh, there's lots of scenes that are centered around them uh, looking at the clothes and these kind of things that were really gadgety and stuff like that in the 80s it seemed really cool um i love the character hollywood um despite the fact that my uh, childhood naivety had no idea that he was he was a gay character um Despite, so as you look at it now, and it's almost so so much of a stereotype, it's almost harmful. One um, of those things you have to, I guess, forgive because it was of its time. Um, but yeah, I uh, I used to love that. Me and my sister loved that film. We watched it over and over again. I could probably um, say it word for word. Brilliant film. Okay, so you're uh, you're next up with your seven as well. Okay, so my number seven uh, again. Um, continuing the theme of the uh, girly films is Dirty Dancing. So Dirty Dancing, it's kind of, it's just every little girl's dream watching this girl kind of almost made into a princess. Um, you know, we, we were practicing the dance routines uh, in our bedrooms and things like that. He was this gorgeous hunk and he had a lovely, cool car. Um, I just, yeah, I, you know, 
I didn't actually understand what it was all based on. When you look at the fact that it's based on the young lady has to have an illegal abortion, that completely goes over my head as an eight, nine, ten-year-old watching this for the first time. And it's only as an adult that I realised that slightly darker undertone to it. Um, but yeah, so Dirty Dancing, I think that if you ask any um, female 80s film buff, they will put Dirty Dancing in there because it's just such a classic. Sorry to go with gender stereotypes and stuff like that, but I know all of my friends will say Dirty Dancing, yeah, right the way up there. Um, yeah, I think I've seen it a couple of times and my sisters loved it when, when, when we were growing up. That was, again, if I was to ask them, that would be in the list, definitely. Um, Ollie, you're number seven. Um, right. So since Gemma did her self-admitted stereotypical thing, I'm going to do my uh, self-admitted stereotypical thing now and get back to the Mayan kind of film. But this is a different kind of Mayan film because it's a smart film in disguise. And it's Robocop by Paul Verhoeven. And all of his films, on the face of it, are these absolute, you know, Guns to the wall, explosions, everything, just, oh, man. But you delve a bit deeper, and the themes in there are, you know, kind of dark and poignant and horrifying. Robocop has this dystopian future. All of the news has this way, vague whiff of propaganda about it. Um, you know, the, the adverts being placed everywhere and being played throughout the film, like you're kind of watching a commercial. It's almost played like OCP, the big corporation in there showing you a bit of propaganda as to how good robocop is and um verhoven does it in a bunch of his films like starship troopers um i think it's in the 90s so i did consider it for this but starship troopers goes that one step further because it's like a fascist government the whole thing's like a propaganda reel paul verhoven is very very good at this kind of film it's like it tricks you into thinking you're just watching dumb explosions but no, if you delve deep enough, there's some really good stuff. And loss of identity for Robocop as well. Alex Murphy was gunned down, declared dead, and brought back literally as a machine because a corporation owned his body, which is very, very grim. And he takes that in his stride because he's a proper 80s hero. So, yeah, Robocop, number seven. That's the definition of an 80s hero. We'll, we'll steal your body, but you take it in your stride. That's what you do. You get up and you carry on. What did you think of the remake of Robocop? I, it was really, really hindered by the fact that they just decided to make it a PG-13. Yeah. And there was a lot of good ideas in there that they didn't follow through in any way, shape or form. So there's a whole scene where he's in the training, he's doing the training exercise bit. And the doctor, played by Gary Oldman's, explaining how... It's actually a computer running everything, but they're sending signals to his brain so that Alex thinks he's in control. And there's a really good message in there, but they don't bring it up again. It's just one scene, and then they move on to the next half yeah. year. And yeah, and they show um, what's it, Samuel L. Jackson as your like kind of angry Fox co-host. And there's like terrorists in the Middle East, but they're in it for the opening scene to be shocking, and that's it. And it's like. It's just a bit, it, it's, it could have been great, but it is a bit all over the place. Because if you just consider the cast of Gary Oldman, Michael Keaton and Samuel Jackson in a oh film like gosh. that, you're like, what happened there? Joel, I really like Joel Kinnaman as well. I think, yeah. he was, I think he was a good choice to take over. I've completely forgotten his name now. Um, uh, Paul Peter Weller. 
P-O-L-E, yeah. Yeah, if you're going to have anyone to replace Peter, well, yeah, Joel Kinnaman's a very good shout, but but they don't, and also they don't make you feel sorry for him. They don't establish any kind of family connection to begin with, even though they explore what he was like with his family. Yeah. And that was a really good opportunity to make you feel really sorry for the fact that he was, you know, he lost most of his body and they just don't do it. <laughs> it's because he wasn't an action, an 80s action hero. That's yeah, what happened. He was a brooding 2000s or 10s hero. So. Too much emotion. Mm. Uh, my number seven from 1988. I feel like a lot of mine are from the kind of latter part of the, uh, the 80s. Uh, is Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Um and I think that three things that I've written down, first and foremost, Bob Hoskins is fantastic in that film. Um, he, just as Eddie Valiant, it's uh, the, one of the heartbreaking things that I saw after Bob Hoskins died is that someone had drawn a picture of Roger Rabbit holding Eddie's hat and it just said, so long, partner. And Robert and Roger Rabbit was crying. And I just thought, that's it. That's that's done me now. I'm now upset that Bob Hoskins died. Um one quiz question that I think I even used in a staff quiz once and that I use all the time is what film is the first film that featured Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny on screen at the same time? And that was Roger Rabbit. And then just the fact that it's a film noir in the 80s, masquerading as something else entirely. You look at it and you think it's a family film and then you go into it and it's like you've got the femme fatale of Jessica Rabbit who, by the way, if you stop a 40-year-old man in the street and say, who was your first crush? They'll probably say Jessica Rabbit and they're admitting to fancying a cartoon character. Get a grip, man. Uh, (laughs) But generally, I just think this is a great film. This is just one of those films that you can go back to all the time. You can get something out of it. And Judge Doom, Christopher Lloyd's Judge Doom, is a terrifying villain. In the midst of him playing something as lovable as Doc Brown, he can come out and pull this out. So again, that's my number seven. I think it's a great film. Uh, Sam, what's your number seven? Well, mate, you couldn't have worded it better yourself. Who framed Roger Rabbit number seven? <laughs> um, I don't really know what how else to talk. What else are you going to say, Sam? <laughs> I tell you, not much, not much else. Um, yeah, uh, no, I think I think what I think the the bad day, Christopher Lloyd was terrifying, wasn't it? Especially when he gets crushed and then he comes back at the end but everything Bob Hoskins amazing everything you've covered and when we mentioned that we did the Batman podcast and we said it had that sort of noir feel it's it's played in a similar sort of feel to that but it had everything and the cartoon characters it was just a real um fun loving film but it's just I look back and that I just have the fondest memories and it always makes me smile I'd still watch it now and I obviously with with me, you know, having a child, uh, these these films are definitely just going to be on the education list for film night. Um, my my wife's not always massive into films, but I've already made like lists of films that they will be watching. Because um, I say, oh, you know, have you seen this film? And she'll go, no, no, I've not seen it. I'm like, how how could you not have seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit? So, this is the big one at the minute. It's not an 80s film. My wife hasn't seen it. My sister in law hasn't seen it. So her boyfriend has the same conversation. Has your wife seen The Matrix? So this is a is a huge. Did we not discuss this during the? Batman? I don't know. We might have done. So so my father-in-law loves the Matrix. That's Sarah's dad. Yeah. And he loves it. And me and him used to. That's how we first met each other. And we'd watch the Matrix like when when the girls had just decided to go off and talk about whatever. And Sarah's like, my dad always goes on about this Matrix film. Like, should I be watching it? I'm like, you've never seen the Matrix. So that is like our number one. Just as a coincidence, that is number one on the yeah. list. 
the only reason I haven't done it so far is because it's not on Netflix or Prime, so I begrudge paying for the trilogy. But I really want to educate her with that trilogy of the Matrix. You stinge. The Matrix one. <laughs> I know. <laughs> hey, enough to pay for. I'm telling you, I'm already out of pocket paying for everything with a uh, baby coming. I don't think it works as out of pocket. <laughs> well, uh, right, you're doing your number six then, mate. Right, number six. I think number six as well has also been done by Ollie. Um, and again, it, we have to go with the, the man aspect, um, but Predator. Um, and I know it sounds, some of these, I mean, people will be listening to me thinking, what, what is going on when you've got really good films maybe that they would class in, in the, the 80s? But I mean, Predator, I, I had this debate, a throw between uh, the Terminator and Predator, and it was back and forth. But for me, Predator wins hands down. And I understand um uh, terminate is really good but predator was so so good it terrified me as a child but also it had the action and i think ollie explained it so well at the end that that sort of um scene where it's just between him going into combat and and who triumphs all together i think the, one of the creepiest scenes i can remember is um where he's he's like camouflaged in the tree and the predator like crawls over him or next to him uh, because he can't see him and as it, as it goes on, I'm just thinking, you're in a great place here to win this fight. And he's just firing arrows at him. And then he gets detected. And then it just, it's like, oh, he knows where you are. And it, it's just really good. Or when they jump into the water and, and then he, he's crawling up the, the little uh, mud bank and he, he just comes up behind him and you think game over and he hides between the sort of tree branches and everything. Great film. Um, and I think Ollie said it as best as well just like you did with uh, Roger Rabbit. But we did have that crossover that you, that you said we would have. But Predator, 100%, six for me. Uh, yeah, six for me. Uh, I, I feel like the crossover is inevitable. I think we've still got some more to come. Don't worry. Uh, Gemma, you're number six. Yeah, so I actually just wanted to mention something about The Matrix there with you talking about The Matrix. I know that's 90s, so it's deviating a little bit. But uh, as someone who's uh, got a degree in theology, um, it's sometimes incumbent upon me to ruin people's lives with my boringness. And um, if you watch The Matrix, you'll actually see that there's a massive amount of Christian um, kind of uh, comparisons and Christian mythology in there. So, um, uh Lawrence Fishburne's character, what's he called? I can't Morpheus. Remember what's... Morpheus, he's like John the Baptist because he uh, warns of this next one coming that's great. The ship is called the Nebuchadnezzar. That's an Old Testament king. Trinity is obviously one of the characters. That's a massive Christian concept. Um, the place they're trying to get to is called Zion. Uh, there's absolutely loads. It was actually even released over the Easter weekend of that year. So next time you watch it, watch out for all that Christian imagery in it. There's even a scene where when they get on the Nebuchadnezzar for the first time, you can see a Bible verse on the sign, the ship's name sign. It says Mark something. So there's loads of Christian imagery. So go and bore yourself by having a look at that. Sometime. That'll be next time round. <laughs> there's some not um, so My number six then. Sorry? There's some not so subtle stuff as well. Like when you first meet Neo, you get the guy literally saying to him, you're my saviour, man, my yeah. own personal Jesus Christ. He does oh, say that. Dude. And then the baddie is called Cypher, like Lucifer. Yeah. yeah. Jeremy, when I show Sarah this, I'm just going to stick with the film first. Um, <laughs> yeah, just ease him in gently. Yeah, just, just, just to a spy on it for us. Get him off. 
Um, right, so my number six. Okay, so my number six is the National Lampoon's uh, Vacation. So it's really hard to choose which one out of those. I loved all of those. So there's the um, there's the National Lampoon's Vacation where they go to Wally World. There's the Christmas Vacation, which is where he drains the national grid of uh, the electrics when he puts the lights up uh, and the squirrel in the tree as well. And then I think I settled on the National Lampoon's European Vacation as my favourite of that series. So that was something that, again, me and my twin, we just watched and we watched and we watched over and over and over again. Um Another scene in it, like with it in Mannequin, where they've got the over-the-top 80s clothes and they go shopping one day. I know it's really slapstick. I know the comedy is like baseline. You can see where it's coming every single time. But for me, watching that is absolutely classic. I still laugh, even though I know what, what he's going to do. I still laugh at it. I can't watch that without roaring out loud. I love all of those. So, yeah, uh, National Lampoon, European vacation for me on that one. Uh, Ollie, you're number six. Okay, so uh, I have gone for uh, First Blood, the very first Rambo film. I absolutely like because this was an era where they were actually trying. There were a bunch of films trying to tackle the kind of horrors of war rather than trying to glamorize it. And I think it was slightly too early because if it was a year later, this slot would be Apocalypse Now. Because uh, Apocalypse Now is a fundamentally better film than First Blood in every single way, but it came out in 1979. Um, I could have had Platoon as well, but the reason I love Rambo, uh, First Blood, is because it is such a personalised look at this guy who was basically built from the ground up to be a killing machine and how it's kind of ruined him in coming back. Because it's when you first think Rambo, you think, oh, Sylvester Stallone's there with a big machine gun. There's one person that dies in this entire film, and it's a weird accident where Rambo throws a rock at a helicopter. The helicopter pilot decides to shake his entire helicopter, and the deputy shooting at Rambo with a sniper falls out. So the only death in this film is a pure accident. It's much more of a look at an incredibly troubled individual who gets pushed and harassed by the law enforcement to a breaking point and now everyone no one in the film is right rambo is not right for assaulting a bunch of people and but uh timble the sheriff is also pushing out on him and having this prejudice because he looks like a drifter troutman the colonel who comes in was wrong to take this guy and not prepare him for life after war the only criticism i've got of the film really is it's one of those cases where they filmed an original ending, which was much, much better. And it's fully filmed and you can find it on YouTube. When he breaks down in the police station at the end, there is a version of the scene where Rambo gives the colonel a gun and asks him to shoot him because he, he, he's done. He can't, fu he can't function anymore. And, in the, and the colonel takes the gun, holds it, refuses to, and then Rambo jumps at him and then makes him shoot him. And now obviously they didn't go for that because I think they were like, ooh, sequels. But um, which they did do, but th that would that would I mean it would have been a massive downer ending. But I think these days that is more that is definitely the ending they would have gone for, and it would have been an incredibly tragic film when all said and done at the end of the day, and a really really good look at P uh, PTSD, especially for its time. So Rambo. Uh, 
Yeah, the, I mean, the weird thing with alternate endings is that they they probably were going through the mill at the time of going, we'll shoot two and we'll see how we go and we'll see how yeah. people like it. And probably around about that time, you were getting more and more test audiences coming in. Yeah. So the idea of we're going to try this with an audience, if they don't like it, we'll change the whole thing. And yeah. that, that has positives and negatives to it because there are films that probably in one sense or in one draft would have been terrible had yeah. they not been shown to a test audience. But then there are some things where you just think this could have been so much better. Yeah, the ending wasn't terrible either that they went with where he's kind of led away and, you know, he's put in prison. Ultimately, that's not a terrible ending. But I think as downer as it is, that alternate ending is just so powerful. And it's more because it's based on a book and it's, mm. it's more in keeping with the story at the end of the book where that he actually does kill a lot of people in the book as well, because he does. Full, he fully snaps in the book. Um where is here? And it's one of it's one of those as well. Stallone gets a lot of stick because he's not very good at talking, but he's a very, very underappreciated actor. He gets a lot, he gets across emotion a lot better than people give him credit for. And that scene at the end where he breaks down and recounts his mate um getting killed in a suicide bombing attempt is heartbreaking. He's brilliant think, in it. <laughs> you're you're right that he doesn't get enough credit because I think I think forward to things like Creed and Creed 2 where he put in some really good supporting actor performances there um, and it, it gets lost in the midst of all these action films um, you know Demolition Man is the one that I think about a lot when I think of Sylvester Stallone for whatever reason um, okay so my number six is a film that I have really watched recently and by for the first time recently I mean like in lockdown recently uh, for the first time and that is Planes, Trains and Automobiles which came up during my John Hughes episode with James King. Um, so this is from 1987, Steve Martin and John Candy. This is John Hughes delving into adult films. And not, you know, that sounds a bit wrong, but more adult-themed territory and things like that, um, rather than, you know, giving the teenagers a voice. And this is, I'd always wondered about a film and Mark Kermode uses it a lot. He says, this is a caper, or this is a caper film. And I'd always wondered if I've ever seen a caper film before. And the idea, you know, and I think this is it. This is the film that summarises that kind of sort of subgenre a little bit. I loved Steve Martin in it. I think that his comedic timing is exemplary. And even the, you know, the, the kind of infamous scene now where he turns on the... Uh, the the lady in the uh, in the airport and that is the one kind of expletive filled rant that you get throughout the entire film and John Candy's emotion just in his face you can believe him with the subtlest change of facial expression and again it's something similar that he does in Home Alone where he's trying to offer Kevin's mum a lift with his poker band and she says no and he's a bit like oh and you, you immediately feel sorry for him um, so again, this was a really, again, really recent watch. So I have only seen it the once, but straight away it was just like, why have you not seen this any earlier? What have you been doing? And that's it for our first part of our 80s top 10 films. Come back on Friday for part two. In the meantime, you can support Farrandon Film by following us on Twitter at Farrandon Film, by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Farrandon Film, and leaving a five star review at your favourite podcast provider. Stay safe, look after each other, and I will see you on Friday.